Hello there and welcome to another episode of Neuroresiliency. In this episode, we're going through the sixth of the 10 harmonies, number six, which is the social mind. Now, the 10 harmonies are 10 things that I believe all human beings need to balance. We have previously gone through the first five, which are also physical things. So please be sure to go go in the past and check out the other five. So the, the first uh, to the fifth, the physical needs uh, to harmonize are going to be sleep, nutrition, movement, stillness, and breath. And then we've got the five psychological or let's say emotional harmonies, which are social, emotional, cognitive, agency, and legacy. So in today's session, we're doing the social part. Okay. If you're enjoying the podcast, please be sure to subscribe. Make sure that you like and rate the show, please. That would be very much appreciated. And if you are not yet subscribed, please subscribe to the Substack below. You will get email notifications every time there's a new episode, as well as anything else that's extra. So a lot of the times I'm a guest on other people's podcasts, and it's very easy for you to find that. If you're part of the, the subscriber count, guess what? You're going to get a notification of that. If anything new happens, you're going to get a notification of that. So The other great thing about that is that you can reply to me one-to-one, tell me what you think, if you have any proposed ideas, if you'd like me to comment on something, or if you'd like to contribute as well, feel free. I would love that interaction. Great. Without further ado, let's get into the show. So today we're talking about the social part of the 10 harmonies. The part that you need to harmonize a lot is connected with what is our brain primarily designed for? And it turns out that all the evidence suggests the concept of the human mind being orientated around social. We are a social animal, and therefore, evolutionary speaking, all of our adaptations are about how do we manage our relationships with the tribe so that we can survive, thrive, and actually have offspring and pass on our genetic information. So it's very rare that uh, human lone wolves, so to speak, will come out and be able to pass on their um, genetic information, you know, and have children, pass on their DNA, propagate their line. It's very uncommon that those lone wolves will actually do that because number one is, you know, let's say partners, their their mates won't actually take a a chance on them because there's very little security there that this lone wolf is going to provide for their their family. Now, what's interesting to talk about this, and let's just take a step back. The concept here is that our bodies were designed and evolved to survive in certain environments. So I want you to think, let's say 12,000 years ago, before the agricultural revolution, you know, man was nomadic to the best of the abilities um, of archaeologists to determine uh, we didn't have great civilizations way back when. Civilizations and, and um, societies stopped being nomadic when they could stay in one place and have continuous food and predictable food amounts, which is literally what, what came about with the agricultural revolution. Before then, we were herding peoples. We were very nomadic. We were you know, the hunter-gatherer types that would you know that can still be seen today as well. Uh, scavenge from the land, you know, collect food, hunt, etc. And so our our bodies are designed, our biology is 
literally dialed into that. So if we want to talk about sleep, you know, all the natural stuff that seems to affect our sleep positively has all got to do with, well, can you can you emulate what we experienced 12,000 years ago, which is campfire, low light at night, you know, um, waking up with the sun, getting morning lights in your eyes, getting the sun set in your eyes as well. Um, when it comes to food, it's going to be whole foods, very... Uh, very unprocessed. It's very difficult to process food if you're nomadic. You know, you can't build huge factories and machines that are going to be able to like process food and make it more palatable. That didn't happen. And then on top of that, obviously, like you're eating whole foods, you're eating very nutritious foods. So your gut health is going to be fantastic, you know, which means that you're going to make the most out of all your nutrients. And then on top of that, your movement is fantastic. You're really naturally adapted. You're going to be doing things regularly. So I I heard something that was quite interesting, which was the big difference between, um, you know, someone living in a modern day environment and let's say the hunter-gatherer types is not sitting. Everybody sits. But what turned out to be the interesting number was that the hunter-gatherer types would move every 15 minutes. They would sit and then move around. And so they were almost like a little bit restless, like every 15 minutes moving. So if you sit down, sit for no more than 15 minutes and see actually how how much your body responds to that. So again, you know, we see these adaptations coming in where if we understand that our body is dialed in to the environment that it was 12,000 years ago. So one of those is, of course, the fight or flight response, you know, your sympathetic and parasympathetic nervous system. So today, if you step out in the road in front of a car and this car blares their horn, you make a stupid face like Jason Statham says in, you know, Snatch in the Guy Ritchie movie Snatch. It's like you just freeze in place and you make a stupid face as this thing happens in front of you. And you're like, (gasps) but the idea of that doesn't serve us in our modern environment. Our environment evolved faster than our biology could adapt to it. But if you think about 12,000 years ago, the environment, what's the purpose of freezing? Well, if you consider that every animal bar, mm, I think two or three types, will do a mock charge. So in other words, they will pretend to, they will fake a charge at you to see if you react. Why? Well, because fighting is incredibly expensive because there's the potential of death every time you fight with something in the wild. So most animals would rather just run away from any threat or give a mock charge to kind of test your resolve. And so for humans, like we're not going to be able to fight a lion. Are you kidding me? It can literally kill you with its face. Whereas if it gives you a mock charge and you're standing there and you freeze up, you're you're more likely to survive than if you turned around and ran. Because as soon as you turn around and run, you're also showing them your food because food turns and runs. You turn and run. I mean, it's very simplistic of me to say that and, you know, feel free any animal behaviorists to correct me, you know, but in order to do that, please subscribe to the subject below. (laughs) And the idea behind it is that that's a perfect evolution for the environment that we were in. It's not a good evolution for the environment that we are in. So all of this is just Sure, hypothesis. I didn't live 12,000 years ago. However, what does the data show? Well, the data shows 12,000 years ago, that's how we lived. Roaming around, nomadic, great. And what does our body tend to respond to? Well, it tends to respond to like movement on all planes, not just going to a gym and lifting in one plane of motion. 
you know, or repetitive motions. Yeah, we can get good, nice, big muscles like Arnold, but how much of that is functional? How much would Arnold have survived 12,000 years ago? Well, he didn't run very fast or he wasn't very agile. He wasn't able to, let's say, hunt very well. So how much did his muscles actually do for him back in the day? I mean, the only adaptation that we could say is perhaps social adaptation. So let's get there. So the physical adaptations for 12,000 years ago make sense. Now let's talk about the social adaptation, which is just literally this concept of if you look at all animals and how they create their hierarchies, you look at ants, you look at insects, a lot of them are just loners that will come together for mating time to be able to propagate the species. Great. Um, it's very interesting. Uh, if you look at reptiles as well and the depth of emotions that they feel and how they you know, congregate, well, again, they're pretty much uh, solitary animals that don't mind each other or they'll like have a spat, but they don't organize themselves necessarily into the same types of structures that we do. So as soon as we get into mammals, we start to get a little bit closer to it. But just take a look at the difference between cats, dogs, and apes. Uh, just to illustrate my point, if we look at cats, cats are very happy to be alone, but they'll also they're also known to show affection and you know travel around in groups. So if we look at house cats versus let's say uh, wild cats like lions, cheetah, you know we've got different types of structures as well. But then you look at le leopards and jaguars, and they they're very much solitary animals. So you get closer when we get to dogs because now dogs like uh, to gravitate towards the pack and they'll have a pack leader and things like that. So that gets quite interesting as well. But if we look at apes and the way that apes structure themselves, we see a lot more similarity between apes and humans. And from that came um, Dunbar's number. So if you've heard of Dunbar's number, it's that our brain uh, can manage about 150 relationships, give or take. Now, I will say that Dunbar's number has been debunked, unequivocally debunked. And that's and that's fine because basically they're saying that um, actually all you need to do is look and we can manage far more than 150 uh, relationships. But if you think about it, Dunbar's number didn't take into account that our relationships can be like great, like our best friends, our families, things like that. And then extending out to extended families, extended friends, friends of friends, acquaintances, and then just people that we pass by in the street, the barista at your local coffee shop. Like, who is that person? I don't know, but I've seen them. I've seen them. I know them. You know, and you created a slot in your head for knowledge of that relationship as well. And we can handle far more than that. So Dunbar's number has been debunked, number one. Number two is just this idea of like um, looking at how many relationships we can manage isn't necessarily going to tell us much, but rather let's look at it from this perspective. If we think that managing social relationships would mean that we were secure. If I am a hunter-gatherer, the strength is in the group. My ability to hunt a single animal isn't as great as my ability to hunt as a team and bring down something larger. And bring that, that, let's say, a huge animal down that the tribe can then eat. Because then there's going to be other people in the tribe that are going to do things. So if I learn to hunt as part of a team, maybe there's other people back at the tribe that's going to be uh, preparing you know, vegetables to go with the food. Or you know, someone's going to be uh, starting the fire to cook and another person's already going to be skinning. And we start to get a little, a little bit more specialization 
you know, a division of labor. And this is where humanity tends to shine is division of labor and our social brain kicks in to actually negotiate uh, common goals and negotiate those relationships as well. So we don't always have to vie for status. We can automate this type of thing to make these, these actions come a lot more seamlessly also. So think about just running your household and how much goes unspoken of, but you always do this. So why wouldn't you just carry on doing this? And this is where we come to this place of um, good management of social relationships relies on good communication, right? Before, during, and after an event. And making sure that, yes, we can automate it, but we're also free enough to allow the person to adapt, adjust, to change their minds as well. So the idea of the social harmony is how many social relationships do you crave, do you want, do you desire, and which types of social relationships would feed you? Knowing this as well, you also have a tendency within you to do so much to show your value to others that developed as you were a child, as you were a teenager, to somehow show others that you were worthwhile, that you were valuable. So, you know, I always had the need to be the smartest in the room. And if I wasn't in the, the smartest in the room, I felt useless and worthless and whatever. So if people didn't see me as the smartest in the room, but just like the irritating guy or something like that, it was incredibly painful. And I would try and position myself as much as possible as the smartest guy in the room, the smartest guy in the room, the smartest guy in the room. And of course, it's only as an adult, I can unpack that and say, oh, that was a childhood's way, a, ch a child's way, a teenager's way of trying to show value. And now as an adult, I can say, well, I don't need to provide value in those ways. I can provide value by doing menial tasks like washing dishes for someone because the gesture is always appreciated. Help is always appreciated. You know, I've shown value to people that barely know me. Um, one of the ways is, um, here's a quick example. A couple of weeks ago, heard a loud bang, got called outside. And one of our neighbors happened to have a seizure of some sort while he was driving his car and crashed into the tree. And his family was trying to get him out of the car while one of the family was on the phone with 911. The, the son-in-law was trying to break open the window to get to him as well because he was slouched over too. And, you know, I helped uh, break a window, open up one of the front doors, lean over, you know, like help him up, unlock the door so people could get in and everything like that. And I did this because I knew that this is, this is gold. This is social gold. This is how relationships are formed. And because of that, you know, obviously they're very appreciative, but we have more of a connection now. We have more of a relationship now because I chose to invest in those moments as well. So that's just one example of this idea of, you know, social relationships and about showing up to be valuable. I didn't need to be the smartest person. Oh, you should call this person. You should do this. You should do that. Like, what kind of help is that? But something menial, like just opening up a door, anyone could have done it. But the fact is, is that I did it. I took that action. So any act of kindness or any act of investment is something that people always see as valuable. And that's why there's this idea of being helpful. But remember that there's always a limit to that as well. And managing social relationships is making sure you're not giving your ass away. So make sure that you're giving, 
but it's a good ratio of giving and you're harmonizing with your ability to give and your ability to have your own time and time for yourself. And that's how you can harmonize that uh, introversion and extroversion too. So another another thing to think about is to think about the pressure that social situations can put on us as well. If you don't believe in the social brain having that much of um, you know a bearing on you, just think about you standing in your room delivering a speech to the mirror. Now I want you to imagine delivering that speech in front of a hundred people, and imagine the difference in the stress or anxiety that you feel between those two situations. What's changed? Actually, well, nothing's changed. They're exactly the same situations, except for one has a social consequence where the other does not. The same is said for meeting strangers. You could practice the dialogue of like, hi, my name's Justin. How are you today? No, 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 no. But when you go into those situations, all of a sudden there's a social consequence. There could be rejection which is this concept of like, well, our brains were developed for 12,000 years ago. Rejection meant banishment. Somehow we're not valuable enough to keep in the tribe. We're going to die. We need to make sure that this counts. So there's all these social situations that could put pressure on us, like public speaking, meeting strangers I mentioned, leading, leading others, leadership positions here. And then the last one is romantic partnerships as well. Now, the reason why I mention romantic partnerships is the very simple fact that around me, what I see is people trying to get dialed in with romantic partnerships in a way that for me doesn't make sense. They're like, they're trying to find the one, the perfect person. A person who does this, does that, does the next thing. Great. Okay. And what happens? I've made this mistake too. You know, I remember breaking up from a you know very long relationship and going back to London. And when I was in London, I was like, right, I'm not settling for anything less than a girl with like tattoos all the way down her arms. And, you know, she's got to like heavy metal music as well. And, you know, I made this list of qualities that she had to be. And of course, what did I get? I got all the nut jobs. You know, I really dated like, what, four different women that met those requirements that were absolute nightmares. And I mean, it's not fair for me to say that they were absolute nightmares, but let's just say that we didn't get along. And why is that? Well, when it comes to it, the number one thing with managing in romantic partnerships tends to be conflict. How do you resolve and move forward when you have conflict? And so every relationship that I went to after that was, let's have conflict as soon as possible in a low consequence environment, as low stakes as possible, and see how can we manage the relationship then? Like, is conflict seen as a bad thing or a good thing? Is conflict showing an opportunity for growth or is conflict showing like um, in, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, you know, differences that you cannot reconcile, unreconcilable differences. There we go. That's what I was looking for. So the concept is with romantic partnerships, the social problems usually come up with conflict. Why? Because conflict is usually stemming from something that is unresolved in us from childhood, from teenage years about trying to show up and be socially valuable and our partners not 
not giving us that social value that we want in whatever way or us ignoring it in the partner and meeting the needs of the partner to be seen, to be heard, to be loved. Now, I don't want to just leave you there. So what I am going to leave you with is the human givens. Now, I've talked about the human givens multiple times on the show, but the human givens tells us that we have nine emotional needs. So I'd like you to think about your emotional needs on a scale of one to 10, where one is not a lot, 10 is a lot. This is this need is filled, okay? To be able to determine one need to focus on, right? So let's start off with the easiest one, which is the need for emotional security. Now, I want you to think about this. This emotional security is this idea that you can predict your partner's moods, that you know when you can fall apart and not fall apart based on your partner. If you have to be the partner who's always catching the other one, that's that's tough. That's difficult. Like, can you make mistakes or not? And the same is true in your friend groups. The same is true in your business, in your team. If you don't have emotional security, if you feel like there is a consequence of you um, like stepping one foot out of the line, that's a problem. That means that, that that's going to be a one out of 10 or to some degree there. So I want you to give that a score on, uh, uh, from one to 10. Emotional security. Okay, how much emotional security do you feel? All right, so let's pick up speed and go a little bit faster. The next one is meaning and purpose. And meaning and purpose is determined by, are you doing what matters to you with enough challenge that it's it feels like an accomplishment when you actually challenge yourself? Okay, doing what matters to you. That's very, very, very important. Scale of one to 10. The next one is intimacy. Intimacy is not what most people think, uh, at least defined by human givens, where intimacy is like sexual intimacy. Like, no, you know, emotional intimacy has got to do with the idea of vulnerability, which means that you can bear your soul, warts and all, to your partner, your friend, your boss, whatever it is, and they will accept you. Not only will they accept you, like if you're telling them that you murdered someone, they'll help you bury the body. That is complete intimacy. Like a person sees you, every part of you, every facet of you for who you are and still accepts you. That's intimacy. Attention is the next one, which is to give and receive attention. That's it. To give and receive attention. Scale of one to 10, what would you say you are? Privacy. And when I say privacy, it's just the the, the ability and the need to be alone so that you can reflect on your day, so that you can do what you want to do. It's the ratio of being with others versus being with yourself. Some people have a higher ratio of privacy. Some people have a lower ratio. It's up to you to know how much privacy you need and give yourself that privacy as well. So on a scale of one to 10, how much is this need being met? The next one has got to be community. Community, which is that you belong to a group of people. Now, it doesn't have to be, um, you know, a very tight-knit group of people that you're like, yes, I'm one of the group. Ooh, it could just be the community literally where you live, like the little neighborhood. How many people do you know in your neighborhood? Do you wave at your neighbors or not? Do you know their names? Do you know their phone numbers? Things like that. Like, are you able to connect with them? But then also your community at work, your community with your hobbies as well, your community as in your family, friends, things like that. Do you feel a sense of belonging to your community? 
that if you weren't there, that they would call you up and say, hey, where are you? Are you okay? So that is then tied to the next need, which is status. That inside this group, you have a unique role, a unique function. Oh, go and speak to him. He's the blah, blah, blah guy, the tax guy, the the kind guy. Oh, yes, he's always so mm -hmm, whatever that is. So what is your status? And having status within a group, so you're not just seen as another number, but a unique individual. So scale of one to 10 there. Last two, last two, very quickly. Control, control. You have a sense of control of agency, of, of responsibility for yourself. Like you are able to move the needle on things that matter to you. You are able to take a situation and actually manipulate the situation, influence the situation. So on a scale of one to 10, how much do you feel that you have a sense of control? And the last one is then going to be achievement. And remember, achievement is being proud of yourself, about being challenged to the right amount to challenge your skill level to the right amount. So it could be that like, I don't play guitar. So just learning one song on guitar, even though it's, I'm fumbling my way through it, is an achievement. But imagine a master guitarist learning the same song. That's hardly an achievement for that person. So the right amount of skill for the right amount of challenge is considered to be achievement. And the idea is that achievement is only really achievement as well when it can be uh, shared with others. So sharing your journey with others. And that's to be said about control as well. How much control actually comes up with other people? Like trying to control other people, mm, that's not so great. But inviting others to help you so that you can take control of a certain situation. So support, that is huge as well. And this is a one way of thinking about your emotional needs, your social needs, as it were. And that's all I got for you today. That's it. Thank you for tuning into the show. I really appreciate you listening. Without you, the show is just me speaking to an empty room. <laughs> if you liked it, please uh, please rate me on iTunes, on Spotify. Can't do that on Google Podcasts, I'm afraid. Um, if you're interested in getting more updates, please subscribe to the Substack. I'd love uh, to communicate with you more directly, and that's made possible from the Substack. You can just reply to or comment. Uh, to the emails or to any of the posts that are there. Once again, I appreciate you greatly. So if you have any comments or anything you would like to add, feel free to communicate with me. I'd love that. And as always, my name is Justin and ciao for now. I'll see you in the next one.